Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. Get this thing going. Hey, what's going on, guys? I'm excited for you guys all to be here. This is the second of four um, raising financial literacy during the recession. So we know that last month it was declared a recession. And I'm pretty sure everyone on here is like, 20s, 30s. So there's still a really good time here. And I felt that one of the things that we completely miss in school is financial literacy. We're taught about maybe finance or accounting or psychology, but we're never really taught about financial literacy. And like in the first session, what we talked about was uh, like fixed expenses, variable expenses, how to save, how to budget, how to make more money, how to keep your money. And in this one, I brought on a special guest. We have Stephen Purse. And what Stephen did is super interesting. He went from university, he lived in New York, came down to University of Tampa, went back up to New York. And during, it was during COVID or was it the year, it was still like 2020, 2021. Yeah, it was during COVID. Yeah, just managed to just build a very impressive portfolio to say the least um regarding it's over like 50 units which is or it's around 50 units which is just most people you can't even comprehend that like i have one condo and i think i'm cool um but yeah no it's just really interesting the way he handles it the way he thinks about um real estate investing and i thought who else better to bring on than steven who's been there done it with a couple different tools as you would say a couple different mechanisms but yeah, Stephen, welcome. We're excited oh, to have you. Having me. I like how you said that they don't really teach financial literacy in school because they don't teach about real estate investing either. I know we no. had a real estate investing course. Would have no. been nice if we did. Absolutely. This is the course that we all need. Also, everyone on here, we're going to take the last like 15 minutes, so 845-ish, to do a Q&A with Stephen. Just like if you have a condo or if you have a house or if you're looking to invest, whatever it is, Write down those questions or if you think something interesting from his story, and we'll do a little Q&A at the end. Yeah, so how do you want to do this, Jordan? Do you want to just go like through the story like we did on the podcast, or do you want to go over the different ways you can buy real estate with little or yeah, let's money start down? With, I think the first like 10 minutes, let's just start off with your story. Let's just bring okay. it around, and you can explain how... Like when you graduated, here, I'll start off. When you graduated college, were, yeah. did you want to be a real estate investor? Like what year did you graduate? Um, I want, graduated college in 2018. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know about real estate investing really. And then I got a master's in entrepreneurship. And that's when I first got interested in the space. Got a job down in Tampa. Moved back to New York during the pandemic, working remotely. 
Um, saw a job posting on LinkedIn, a title of just real estate investor, the guy named Bill Hamill up here in New York, started working with him. And that's when I really learned how to be a real estate investor. Um, and his motto is buying real estate with little or no money down. So I guess from there, we can just go through the properties that I got and, and how we how we got them. So yeah. first was... And make a, sure to... Yeah, make sure to date them too. Because I find the dates, like you move yeah. with a lot of urgency, which I find very interesting. I think having a sense of urgency is the most important factor to being an entrepreneur or a real estate investor just because it's so easy to go day to day and get in your routine and not execute on something. I'm sure you've all been there before. The first purchase was June 4th of 2021. Yeah. And that was a duplex in Rexford, New York. Um, I think if you're interested in getting into real estate investing or real estate in general, getting a primary residence is the easiest way to do it, especially with an FHA loan. If you really want to get creative, you can get your license and get a seller's concession as well. So a seller's concession is where they write you a check at the closing to cover closing costs, which is really just your down payment. So if you're getting a commission off the sale, you're getting a seller's concession, and you're only putting 3.5% down for an FHA loan, you can usually get that purchase for little or no money. That first duplex I bought up here was for a 205 purchase price with a $10,000 concession. So I went to 215. I ended up profiting 200 at the closing table. And then... So, you, so in essence, you paid no money for In a, essence, I, I walked away from the closing table with $200 more in my account. <laughs> and there was already a tenant in place who was paying more than the monthly cost of the property. Wow. Wow. And I bring this up because I know we see a lot of stuff on uh, TikTok and all of these different pages where they're like, oh, you can make so much money doing this. But like, how'd you even find that deal? Like, well, I put in like six or seven offers before then. It wasn't like the yeah. first one, you know, it worked out. It took a couple months of looking and putting time. offers and yeah. I'm still in that unit right now. And that was during the great rates that we had back a year plus ago. So I was on that for 2.75. So I don't wow. plan on ever getting rid of that loan. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what forced you to move on that property? Because I know the reason well, I asked that is because I know you had a goal. No, I'd say at that point, I just got out of my parents' house. Because I moved into an apartment in Tampa when I was 18, and then I moved back home to my parents' house at like 23, 24. So I just needed to get out of their place. So that was just fine. At that point, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to be a real estate investor. That was just finding a house and going forward. Because I hadn't been with Bill that long up until then. Yeah. Um, and then once that went through, I started to get the itch for it. Made a goal of getting 10 units that year. And I was still looking for more. And the next one was an eight unit. And I got the call for that eight unit around that June, July. So like right after the duplex closed. Okay. That was, how did, yeah. It was a broker yeah. calling into the office and for multifamily, like residential, you can find on market, you can find good deals, whether you want to do your own place to live or short term rental, you can find deals on market. It just takes a lot of time looking. When you, when you say on market, yeah. When you yeah. say on market, you mean like Zillow? Like, yeah, Zillow. So they, they listed on the MLS, multiple listing service, yeah. and then it goes to the different platforms. Um, you might have an inexperienced agent who's listing it for less than they should. For whatever reason, you can find deals on market for residential. For commercial multifamily, to find a good deal, it's got to be off market. And that's either going direct to seller or having a broker call you before they list it. 
the eight unit was the ladder where he called into our office. And the only reason why I got that call is because it went to my mentor who didn't have interest in it and passed the phone to me. Realized it was a good deal. Um, I guess we can fast forward on that. I purchased it November 4th of 21 for 667. And that's the first time I really used the creative financing of raising private capital to purchase a deal that you know is below market price, below market rents, knowing you can add equity and refi out of that. So when I purchased that for six sixty seven five hundred, I ended up raising two hundred twenty five thousand for it. Raised it at eight percent interest only, and I refied at a nine hundred twenty thousand dollar valuation. So wow! So let's let's slow that down. So yeah. how does that work? Let's break that down. So. Essentially, when you say a private lender, you're talking about like just any friend, any person, like anybody can have the money. Yeah. So like a hard money lender is usually a little more documented. They usually have an attorney. It's not as good of a rate. Private lenders, typically friends, family, someone from your golf club, whatever, where they're just looking to get a return on that capital. And you can do a handshake deal. You can do a one page document, something where you're both comfortable. Yeah, and what do you offer them as a value? I'm paying them eight percent every month on their money. So I raised one fifty from one person, seventy five from another person, and they both okay. get the seventy five gets five hundred a month, the one fifty got a thousand a month, and they okay. were happy. They were happy having that loan because they're guaranteed eight percent. I mean, guaranteed, but they they trust me to pay them back. Yeah. No, I just want to explain it to see where it's a yeah. win 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 for each person and each party, like. For yourself, you're getting the access to the capital to buy the property. For them, instead of leaving the 150 or the 75 in a bank account where it's only getting a quarter of a percent or a percent, you're giving them 8% in a very safe environment. I wouldn't say very safe. That was was my first purchase, but (laughs) um, it's also diversifying if they're in the market. and they get their money back. So they get that 8%. And then at the end of the day, they get their money back. It's an interest-only loan. I'm not paying down principal on it. Gotcha. So, and then I refied out at a 920 valuation. So the bank gives me like 720 on a loan. I pay back the original 75% loan that I got on the first purchase. And then pay back the second loan and still have 10000 profit. Okay. So let's explain that really quick. So... Run me through, because I know there's some people on the call who have never purchased a home. Like, mm-hmm. what's the refinance process and why do you trust it? You know what I mean? Like, because like when you say add equity, I know you're like super experienced and you know all these different angles. I'm just trying to slow it down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So I guess th- we'll start with usually on a commercial asset, the value which is NOI. That's five and over, right? Correct. Five yeah. units. Okay. So if you can raise that NOI or you just know it's below market on the first purchase, you have an opportunity to raise the value of that asset. So when okay. I got this for 667, I knew it was worth more than that. The bank will typically give you give you 75% loan. Sometimes they'll give you 70 with different terms, but around 70, 75% they'll give you on it. Yeah. So if you can come up with the other 25% and get in and then refi at that higher amount. The beautiful thing about refinance is also cash or tax-free cash. So you're getting a check and there's no tax on that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting way that a lot of people make money because they'll refinance because now when you take that money out, you pay everyone back, but now you got 10 grand, which is equivalent to like 15, 12, 13, 14, 15 thousand. And in the big, in the big picture, the 10,000 is kind of negligible. That's just going back into the property. It's the fact that you can get this million dollar asset for seemingly nothing. And then it's going to make you 4,000 a month in profit forever. And while while you're paying down that bank loan as well. Yeah. Which is the fascinating part. So when you refinance, because I know that was a low interest environment, did that affect it? Like did you raise it to go up higher or was it the same? Yeah, low the, rate, the rate went from like four point seven five to like five, I think. So okay. A little higher. Negligible, yeah. yeah. But since you had a lot bigger margin because you were up another three hundred grand. And how did you get up on that property? Is that like did you I didn't, I didn't raise rents that much. I raised them a little bit there. Um, What's a little bit? Like, what were they before? Like, just give it an example. Yeah, when I bought it, the average was probably like eleven seventy five, and then I raised them to twelve twenty five, and then I raised it to twelve eighty five, and I refiled it at twelve eighty five. Yeah. Oh, because with the little bit of rent, it shows that you guys will make a lot more money. So you can okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean that so one wasn't as much of an NOI push, more of just buying it undervalued. Yeah. I think the broker just sold it undervalued. Which is huge for you. It's a great <laughs> yeah, start. The, like the 24 unit I just did, that was all about the NOI push. That was under market rents. If you can raise rents 30%, you can refi out. Okay. So that locks you in regardless, even with the rates rising? Yeah. For commercial right. stuff, I would say rates are just a line item. I mean, yeah, it matters. But at the end of the day, it's just a line item. And you should be underwriting conservatively with a higher interest rate on your refi every time. Like if I'm buying a property right now and say it's a five and a half percent interest rate, that's pretty common for what we're seeing right now. And I'm planning to refi in a year, I'm going to underwrite that refinance loan at six and a half. Okay. Just to, to, just to make sure that, that we're, yeah. 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 Give yourself that margin. So what happens next after the eight unit? Because now you got the 10, you got your goal. Incredible. Yep. After the 10 excited. unit. Yeah, I'd say what was after that? The 15 unit in probably around January, we started working on that. And December, January, and that was a syndication. So a syndication is another great way to buy a large asset with no money. So that was a 15 unit up here in upstate New York. Um, We bought it for like a million 50 and we raised all the capital on that. So that one I bought with my mentor, Bill Hamill. We were the co-GPs or general partners on that. We raised money from, I think, six limited partners, passive investors. They give you the capital. You purchase the asset. We do all the management and they get yearly returns. Yeah. And that one we can dive into. If you wanted to learn more about the syndication, we went through that on the podcast because I know that's a little, uh, it's a deeper explanation. There's a lot that goes into it. It's very formal because it has to be registered with the SEC. There's you know 150 page documents that go out. But if you're looking to get into commercial multifamily, I think syndications are the easiest way to do it because you can do that with no money. If you find a deal or you can raise money, you can be a general partner. And once you get that general partner, you get the percentage and you get the stake in it without yep. having to because you're you're essentially doing the sweat equity. As they yeah, so like on that building, I only own twenty percent of the building. But you have sweat equity, which because you're managing, you're doing it. But you have the twenty percent, but that gives you access. Yes. Yeah. 
to something you wouldn't usually get. And then what was the, the next one? After that was the Airbnb in Tampa. How'd that one work? Uh, just looking on the market, working with uh, Dominic Brescia. If you're looking for a Tampa realtor, hit up my boy Dom. Best in the business. I don't know if he's on his call, but uh, no, he's not. But uh, that was just an on-market property. Again, I think residential, you can find properties on market that work, that are good deals. Um, just constantly looking for the right fit. You know, looking for like a fun backyard, looking for something that stands out on Airbnb. We all know what kind of Airbnb we would want to stay at as a 20, 30-year-old. So looking for that, looking for a good price. Finally found one and used a primary residence loan again on that. And that was in April of this year. So I'll be in Tampa for six months moving forward. And then the other six months, Airbnb that out and end up profiting on the property annually. So how does that run us through the primary residence loan? I know we talked about it where you can put down 3.5 or 5%. But yep. like, so FHA you know, only, is, like, yeah. is like your first purchase and that'll be three and a half percent. After that, you can get a primary residence loan about once a year and that's 5% down. And how many do you get? Is there a set number? <laughs> and you can even do it less than a year. You can do it like around 10 months. If you have like a reason why they'll give you another one. So I think if you want to get into this, if you can just save up like 20000 a year, you can get a primary residence down payment. That yeah. Tampa house was four seventy five, so that's like 25 down. Yeah, and this is like the method I use because when you have that first-time homebuyers, it's interesting because people always think, oh, I need 20%. I need all this money and I'm going to wait. And then prices are higher and it's just a long process. But this first-time home buyer and the fact that you can do it over and over and over again yep. provides a lot of like even if you work a job, even if you have something, you can save up your money, take your acorns, go buy another property, and it's like moving or renting. Like as you rent, you move from year to year to year, so you might as well do it again. And you can do that for like a three or four unit too. Anything up to four units. So I mean, if you're getting a four unit every single year, that's going to add up pretty quickly. And yeah, it's a lot more comfortable to be in an apartment complex on your own or have a single family house than live in a three or four unit with your tenants. But it's also a lot more comfortable to not have a W-2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the yeah. other thing is with, no, but with the three and four unit, basically what Steven's getting at is like, if you do one of those, most of the time you'll see it, it's like one roof. It's like one water, like there's limited water heaters, limited ACs. It, like, talk about how the scale actually might make it easier. Yeah, that's the great thing about scale. I mean, if you have 52 units, that's 50 roofs, 50 or 100 hot water heaters, and 50 driveways to plow when it snows, compared to you have 225 units, that's just two properties to go to. Yeah. Definitely believe and, in scaling. Yeah. And when you explained that to me, I was like, kind of blown away because I didn't even think about it because you're always like the roof's a big expense the AC the water heater those are all big expenses but when you put them all together it becomes one it's just so much easier to manage like imagine Sal here is on the call he's with the property management company that I work with like imagine you have a hundred different yards to go mow every week and you have to map out like what's the most efficient way to go place to place sounds terrible it's significantly easier to just do a big one. So yeah. run us through the, the 24. 
Cause that yeah, was so the 20, the 24 was right after I got home from being down in Tampa. And, uh, I was just on a call with a, a buddy who was telling me like, what he was dealing with. I was telling him what I was working on and he mentioned this property. And I was like, that is exactly what I'm looking for. You know, it's in the town I grew up in. It's a brick building. I, I just loved everything about it. And I asked him if he would assign the contract to me and he said, no. So I called him back like five or six days in a row, finally broke him down to say yes, bought the building from him on an assignment of contract. The purchase price was 2.2 and I paid him 125 for the assignment. So on that one, I did the same strategy as the eight unit. Let's slow slow down there real quick. So there's a couple of things I want to bring up and I just break it down just because it's like, I know the terminology, but I just want to have everyone understand it. So you're talking to a buddy and you guys are just sharing what deals you have under contract. Like by him having the deal means the guy has it under contract. And when he assigns it, he's assigning it to a different person. He's like basically quote unquote, a wholesaler, not in that instance, but yeah. When when you get under contract on a commercial asset, you're going to put, I'll put Steven purse or assigned LLC. That's usually what you're going to put in for the buyer category. Because when you're getting under contract, you don't usually know what the LLC you're going to buy it in is. And that gives you a lot of freedom to assign it to whatever LLC you want to. So yeah. at that point, he had his name or assigned LLC. And so he didn't even tell the seller that he was assigning it to me until we go to the closing table. And she's looking like, Ooh, why are you all here? <laughs> really? And yeah. the cool thing I think about with this story and just the little tidbit that we started off with is that. Steven was just conversing with this person. Like it was a very friendly environment. It's like not, Hey man, like it's just kind of scoping out what everyone's got and seeing if there's a way for you to fit in. Because I love that about the real estate industry because everyone's so willing to help each other, like getting on calls like this and telling you what you've done and what you're working on and the people that you work with other industries are a lot of gatekeepers and not as helpful. (laughs) It becomes difficult. Yeah. So you find out about the deal you guys agree for the assignment of the 125. How long did you have to actually get the money to close? About two weeks, 14 days. So 14 yes. days, how much do you have to raise? 2.4 million. <laughs> <laughs> I had no money. I just spent it all in Tampa. <laughs> and, you, and he was like, you sure you can do this? Like, it's a big one to take down. I was like, yeah, I got it. I, I'm, I'm sure. I wouldn't tell you I could if I couldn't. I'm sitting there like, I have no idea I'm doing this. So what was your first steps? Because I mean, it's one thing to go in and be like, okay, I'm going to buy a house. I feel comfortable. This is good. And it's another thing to go. I have no freaking idea where we're going to get the money from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I say I have no idea, but I knew that. There's no, but I mean, I could of course work you do a couple area. people. Yeah. Yeah. Because I spent the last two plus years like just solely networking with other investors and real estate professionals in the area. Um. So once we had that conversation, I just started going down my contacts and calling everyone, explaining the situation, saying, you know, here, here's the situation. What do you suggest? What do you think I should do? Do you know when I can lend? What, what should I do here? Um, and finally got the head of commercial lending at one local bank to refer me to one private lender that he knew. And that guy ended up lending me $1.8 million, And then someone else lended me 600000 So those are both private loans. And the the incredible thing about this is that it's he built up a list of contacts, and he wasn't afraid to ask, "Hey, do you have a referral man?" 
Like, do you know somebody? Because the guy who gave him the biggest part of the loan probably gave him the biggest amount he's ever been given. You didn't know him prior to except like never, never met him until the closing table. Like what? Like you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Like this is a yeah. fascinating world we live in where we don't always need our own money to pay for things. And the world doesn't work like that. We can use other people's money. And he drove by the property. He's like, this is an awesome property. You're getting it for a really good price. And I see the potential here. And for him, I'm paying him 9% interest only. If I don't pay him, he gets the property. Like it's kind of a win-win for him because he's the first position on the loan, which means if I default, it goes to him. So yeah, he's never met me, but he doesn't have that much risk on it. Well, that that's what I I find very cool about this the whole real estate space is that you can get people outside of your circle to give you money because here's the thing if Steven messes up in any way it's like dude you have the property like it's your like you're doing and all the legwork you, you can get yeah. so creative with it I mean you can technically something you write down piece of paper is a contract and you can write down any terms you want to write down and, and really get creative with that stuff. Like when you have an opportunity to buy a deal like this, I consider it like putting puzzle pieces together and like, you, you know what the final outcome is going to look like. And it's just what pieces can I put together to get that outcome? What are some of the, the variations that you're referring to? As far as like ways to close? Yeah. I guess. Like what just, do you mean by the term? Like the terms, all that stuff. Is it just the interest rate percentages like that you give to these guys or like? Yeah. You, you have to know that you can, get out of these short-term loans click that nine percent i want to get out of that it's not a great rate obviously so i have to do the underwriting to understand that you know the average rent when i buy this place is 950 i'm raising them to 1250 day one the turnover is i'm going to rent at like 1450 because i know the potential in this area so i I know if i can get a private loan for interest only i can refi out of this in a year yeah and let's kind of dive into that. When you're looking at all this, are you concerned about, I mean, you have more leeway because you don't need all the renters paying. You don't need 90% occupancy. Like, is there like rules you follow when going into these larger amount, like with 24, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't say, I don't know if there's rules. It's more of just, you get that feeling with the underwriting. The underwriting is the important part. Yeah. So knowing where the numbers are, knowing where they're going to be, knowing the cap rate for that area, talking to lenders about what you could refinance for at a certain point. Yeah, absolutely. And are you, there's obviously risk in this. Like, obviously, I feel like. Yeah, yeah it's stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm out of the 14 units, two were vacant, 14. Um, planning on turning over so there's eight people that we're going to keep so it's just it's yeah. a lot of hard conversations it's a lot of work that needs to be done there yeah but tell us like we were talking about beforehand what could this 24 unit change about the community oh yeah i mean the people there it hasn't been managed in like 20 something years and i was going through it the day i got it there were, po- there were uh, flyers that posted on the wall and one was from 2007 like I was 11 years old when that, when that flyer was put up and it's still there. There's cobwebs everywhere. It, it was a great property in a great location that had no management. So the tenant quality was bad. And you see, you know, there's drug deals going on. There's stuff that just you, you don't want. It's in a very good suburb for our area, like one of the best in the area, right across from the high school, surrounded by single family homes. 
and it's kind of just like on its own island that hasn't been looked after. So you yeah. definitely are improving the community over the long term. And the goal is to get to a point where you can find these deals, you have your own systems in place, and you hire a manager to just implement those systems, and you're not the one knocking on tenants' doors and picking up garbage every afternoon. That, that's the goal. It's just being able to afford that. Yeah. So right now, at this point, you close on the 24, and you're going through each of these people being like, hey, man, like, it's time to go. Um, I wouldn't word it like that, but yeah. Um, no, in essence, you're saying, hey, like we need, like, how do you have the conversations? Like, cause you're going into each of these people, right? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot of them that stop paying and they're telling me like, hey, I'm going to keep paying. I just waiting for my check next week. And then they're telling other tenants, like, I'm never paying that kid. He's not getting sent for me. So like, I know I have people there telling me stuff. So I know who's not going to pay. And at that point it goes from an attorney. So we have an attorney starting like an eviction process. Okay. I, I try and be as nice and hospitable as I can up until that point. And then I just stop communicating once they are at that point of eviction. Yeah, of course. So, um, is so the that... plan is to re- refinance this one for 3.5, hopefully late winter, maybe early spring. Okay. And then that would allow you to pay off those guys, have a new loan, yep. and you'll be in a so different place. You refired that 3.5, you pay off the 2.4 I borrowed hopefully profit about a hundred thousand on it. And now you have this three and a half million dollar asset that you're profiting a hundred thousand on the acquisition from and cash flowing eight, 10,000 a month on. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's exciting. That's the goal. That's the plan. It's just <laughs> getting to that point. It's a process. It's always a process, but I think everyone here is learning that it doesn't happen overnight. Like you got to build these connections. You got to have these relationships and like, you got to know who to talk to prior to really going in. Yeah. And I'd say the keys are having the sense of urgency and having the mentality that you can just take it down. Waiting, like aggressive, being aggressively patient, just waiting for the right one. And then when you see it, just jumping on it and figuring it out. Yeah. Like I had, I had backup plans on this where like people were telling me, Hey, I'll give you all the money for it. Just give me 30% equity. So when I closed, I had a bunch of different options of ways to, to execute on this oh so you had so you wasn't just those two guys you were just trying to yeah. put it down okay that that ended up being the best scenario to keep all the equity but i had backup options oh okay. I, I i didn't sleep much those two weeks there was stress for two weeks <laughs> but um, there were people that there were ways to get it done but you wanted to make sure you kept all the equity yeah that was the important part and i got an offer for three million on it right at the closing yeah so what would That's that have fun. done? So you could you could have literally sold out and made six hundred grand in the two weeks. Yep. In essence, yep. right? Yep. But I knew that it was worth, you know, three point five in the winter. So and then however much in ten years, twenty years. So you, you make that six hundred short term, which is nice. And I thinking about maybe that was a bad <laughs> idea now to go through all the work, but I know it's not. But this is that delayed gratification that we talked about on the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what else would you, cause we got like 10 more minutes and then we're going to open up the Q and a where we can have anybody ask Steven, whatever you want. Um, but how is the, I'll dive into it a little bit. What I'm interested in, obviously the 24 unit, are you, where did you get this ambitious, uh, ability to go after it? Cause some people are like getting one place is ambitious. So taking on 24, you're like, wow, like, is there really a difference at all or like you don't even think about it? 
Well, there's not that much of a difference in the process. It's just a couple more zeros. The process is fairly similar. I think you have to work your way up. You know, if I started with this 24, I would have been overwhelmed. So going from the two to the eight to the 15 to the 24 is a progression that makes sense. And I think it's just having that sense of urgency. Yeah. Because the first time I called that guy, he said no. And I could have easily just been like, yeah, I just want to sell it. I called yeah. him back. It was like five, six, seven days in a row. <laughs> and finally, I was like, dude, all right, you can take it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like everyone's got their own perspective. So how, how do you find these? And I don't want to go too far off on this, but how do you find these deals? I understand you say underwriting. You look at the numbers, but like, what, what does that actually mean? Just in a quick overview. So how do you find them or how do you analyze them? We'll do both. Okay. So finding them, the best way is to go direct to seller and get broker relationships. So there's softwares out there that'll tell you like, who is the owner of one, two, three main, main street. It's 12 unit building. This guy owns it. Here's his address. Now you can take the approach of either calling him or sending him a letter, whatever you're more comfortable with, whatever you think is better for you. Um, people like to say driving for dollars. That's a bigger pockets term. Maybe you drive around your town, you look for a commercial multifamily building that looks like it's not being taken care of. Or maybe there's one that has you know, a vacancy sign up and there's like a window broken. You can just tell if the owner's not taking care of it. Maybe they'll sell that. Um, so going direct to seller is going to be your best method every single time. Maybe you can't, because they're, they're expensive software. It's like 450 bucks a month. Maybe you don't have the capital to do that. So you're driving around. You see the guy mowing the lawn. You get out of your car. You go talk to him and say, hey, I'm interested in this place. What's the owner's number? He'll probably give you the owner's number. He knows the owner is mowing the lawn. So finding a way to get in touch with the owner is the best way. Number two would be broker relationships. That's a little bit harder because the broker is already going to have established relationships. So before a broker lists any commercial multifamily building, and I'm going to say multifamily because I don't deal with like restaurants and mixed use. I don't deal with those at all. I don't know that industry very well. But I know for a multifamily, before they list anything, anything you see listed, they're calling five to 15 people that they know very well, telling them, this is what I have to sell. Here's about the price we're looking for. Let me know if you're interested. If I don't hear from you, I'm going to list it in two or three days. So the stuff that you see listed, we call it a community dumpster because it's stuff that the the serious guys passed on. Um, yeah. And then for analyzing, you, you have it's just reps. You have to get the right software. Reach out to anyone. Reach out to me. I'll let you know the software I use to analyze. And then analyze one or day at least. Just to get and the then reps. You, and then you get the feel. Yeah. And what do you um, what do you think? I know a lot of your stuff's in New York. And you got a place in Tampa, but what do you think about the different markets? Like investing out of your market, how do you feel about that? Because I know Bill has done a couple of things outside, but well, the stuff he's investing out of his market in, he's a general partner. When he knows his boots on the ground, and there's a good operator that he knows, likes, and trusts. Um, you can invest out of your market; it's difficult. You have to build a team there. I wouldn't suggest doing it on your first real estate purchase, but people have done it and had great success with it. Um, this upstate New York and Tampa markets are so different. Like I get cash flow up here, Tampa, you're not going to find cash flow in multifamily. That's why I went yeah. short term rental because the multifamily just doesn't cash flow. And I yeah. wanted to find a way to get to Tampa because I want to be there for the winters. So short term rental just be, ended up being the only way that I could afford to be there. And now I love that space because short term rental, like you're the nice host that's providing them with a vacation and lifelong memories. 
compared to being that greedy landlord who is, you know, invading their personal home. So it's a very different feel. I'm, I'm leaning more towards a short-term space now. And how do you feel about like locating an Airbnb or find, cause I know there's some people looking for that and there's some people wanting to do that and it can be, wait, do these numbers make sense? How do I know the numbers are right? Do, do they trust them? Like do you use air DNA? Like, what were your thoughts on that? Like, obviously, you know, the Tampa market, but what do you think? About yeah, that? I use air DNA a little bit. Again, I'd say it's just a people business, like reach out to people, you know, go on bigger pockets, go on LinkedIn, look for investors in that area. And they'll be willing to talk to you. If you just give them like an honest, open, cold message, say that you're interested in working in that space, you message 10 people, six will answer you probably. Yeah. It's a really nice space. <laughs> yeah. It, people are more open. They're willing to talk and help people. And they're if open. they're not, I bet a realtor will be. Yeah, a realtor wants to help you. Yeah. Exactly. Because they want you to find the spots. So, so we're just- going to... Yeah. So we'll do, uh, I'll ask them like a couple more questions and then we'll open up the Q and A. I just want everyone to be prepared for, if you have a question and you can just unmute and just ask Steven away. But so Steven, what do you think about, are you looking like, where, where's your next, I know you last time we spoke, you said you were working on something. Are you looking at more deals in New York or what are you, what are you looking at? Submitted an LOI on a 13 unit in New York yesterday. <laughs> Congrats. I haven't heard back from the guy yet, but. He says he's going to check with his accountant and get back to us on a price. So just work out the price on that one. And then you'll have to do a raise for that as well? Yeah, I won't be raising the capital on that one. I'm working with a partner on it who's going to be raising the capital. But that's a situation where I didn't find a deal. I'm not raising the capital. I'm just putting the pieces together and ended up getting an equity share if it works out. Run me through that. If you can put the pieces together you can end up getting equity in a commercial asset. So just explain it real quick. I know we got a couple more minutes before the Q&A, but just explain it real quick. How yeah, you did so that's that. a syndication. There's a kid in our office who's a Notre Dame student because genius. And he's been working this summer on off-market deals. And he found this one deal up here in Schenectady, New York. And I knew someone from my golf club who I know likes that neighborhood and is also in real estate. So I asked him if he had interest in it. We walked it together. He was very interested. He said he'd be willing to raise the capital on it because that would give him more equity. And we also need a loan guarantor. So we're bringing a loan guarantor in to be the fourth general partner. And then I'm going to co-asset manage it with that one guy and hopefully take down. Oh, so that gives you unit. the piece. Really? Yeah. A deal finder, um, asset manager, providing some risk capital. Okay, so you fit... So you basically facilitated who would find the funds for you. Yep. So I'll or raise the take, funds. If we take that down on this structure, I'd have 15% equity in the building. Okay. Just by knowing that one guy who could, who'd be interested in the deal and wanted a piece. Yeah. Just basically putting it all together and then asset managing, which means you're managing the property manager, you're managing the bookkeeper, making sure everything's running smoothly. But again, it's a way to get into, you know, million dollar buildings with no money. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. It, it really is very interesting. And I, and I love that you're uh, so open about sharing. So let's take it on. Does anybody have a question for Steven? Anyone's got any? Just unmute and just ask away. Uh, actually, I have a handful, but I'll go one at a time. So I'm sure other people have questions too. Um, one of the first ones I have is uh, 
when getting loans for like a rental or investment property, do they get taken out in an LLC's name? And the follow up question is, at what point in the buying process do you take out a loan? So anything commercial would be an LLC. Typically, you don't have to, but I would, I would advise that you do that. I'm not an attorney, but your attorney would probably advise that. And then the loan does isn't actually granted until the closing gotcha. from the bank. Um, if you're if you're raising private capital, you're gonna need that before the closing. Awesome. Anybody else? Thanks for sharing, Sal. Hey, guys, I got a question. Yeah. I'm in the gym, so excuse the background noise. But uh, I wanted to know how you went about like finding a mentor. Yeah. My so, second question, sorry, yep. my second question would be, well, we'll, we'll get that later. <laughs> no, the mentor was just good luck. I, I was working a sales job and knew I didn't want to be working a sales job much longer. So I was scrolling job ads every day. And there was a job ad on LinkedIn that was just titled real estate investor. And like I had, didn't really know what it would entail. I wasn't sure what the day-to-day of that would look like, but figured if there was an opportunity or a time to take a risk, that was a good age being 23, 24. Absolutely. Uh, Taylor, what, what I was going to ask him, if you had 50K right now, cash, what would you do with it? What do you think would be... Uh, like the most lucrative invest right now. Personally, I was thinking short-term rental, but yeah, I mean, I thought I'd ask you. the first thing that comes to mind is put it into my 24 unit because I need more money there for renovations. But if you're just getting started, I would say a short-term rental in an appreciating market like Tampa, because yeah. that's the best way to benefit off of cash flow and appreciation. You're going to get that Tampa appreciation and 50,000, you can buy a, $400,000 house, you put, you know, 20 down, you furnish it for 25, you have that five left for reserves, you can cash flow four or 5,000 a month off that thing. Yeah. You, you do that four or five years in a row, you You're don't need really a W-2, yeah. I like Good, goal, man. Good question. <laughs> Good question. Anyone else? Yeah. Hey, what's going on? How are you doing? Long time no see. What's up, Nick? Uh, I've been following your success. I uh, I really appreciate it and uh, and I applaud it. A lot of hard work, and I, I fully understand the full gambit that you've had to run through with all that. Thank um, you. I like the uh, student stuff you've been doing as well. Yeah, it's it's multifamily, just rented by the bed. It's the same shit, just yep. with a different disguise on. But in the, I guess my question for you is, are you scraping the full three to yourself on your management fee? Or are you having to split that with your equity partners? For the syndication? Yeah. So like after you take over asset management, like on the project that you're going to get the 15% equity slug in, are you, going to, are you guys going to split the management fee or are you going to get the full 3% management fee? on that deal to yourself for asset management or are you, they making you pay it back to them too a little bit? Yeah, it's a great question. So on that one, we're going to get a property manager. So they'll be paid probably 8% about. Mm-hmm. And then we also do have a asset management fee baked into that syndication. I'm going to got be it. a co-asset manager with the other guy who's raising the capital. So we'll split that 3%. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Cool. Very cool. 
There's there's they, so they many trust. little fees that are put into syndications that make it really profitable for the sponsors and general partners. Like we typically do a five percent acquisition fee split between the partners. So that's just cash that you get at the closing. There's a three percent asset management fee. There's going to be a refinance fee, a closing fee, and then like on the closing, you can get like a three percent closing fee for the work, and then you can also be the broker on it. Yeah. Now you're talking five six percent. And you're profiting from the profit from the sale. And if you're raising the equity, are you going, okay, well, I also get an equity fee for raising the equity. I'll take two points on the equity too. We don't do equity fees, but that just gives you more equity in the deal as a general partner. Got you. But, we, just raised, we just raised equity on a, on a deal in Daytona. And nice. that's kind of how it works. We got an equity fee. We get a fee for bringing the capital to the deal. Awesome. Well, so we, we, we've done equity fees if they don't get a equity position in the, in the, in the deal. Okay. So usually it'd be like a one-time fee for raising the capital or a position in the deal. Got it. We were a third party. So we were raising, we found the equity to meet the partner for the GP. So we brought, we brought an LP partner. Uh, gotcha. And by by making the introduction and in the LP putting the money in, we got the we got a fee on the money. We'll usually do a three percent fee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. And then we sold it. <laughs> and, and, and then yeah. that's another way that you can make money in this space just by connecting. Yeah. People that are looking for an opportunity to invest in real estate and then a sponsor that you trust. So I was out actually up in New York. Um, we had a deal at SUNY Plattsburgh. Um, I was there a couple months ago. We ended up not not transacting. It went to auction, um, and we got screwed on the auction platform. The uh, the principal that was supposed to close uh, actually forfeited a million dollars non refundable money versus wow. closing on the deal. It was wild. I've never seen that anything like that happen before. But he did because um, he got sued by by the bank for the money because it was a lender take back deal. But you know, if you ever, uh, I'll probably be up in that market again, and maybe we can connect some one way or another in upstate New York. Yeah, it'd be great. And that's Absolutely. what we call awesome. that risk capital. And that risk capital also gets you equity in the deal because you're putting your capital at risk. What, what do you mean by that? What's the, what do you mean by the risk capital? Are you saying so usually there's like a, a down payment that goes into escrow when you submit your LOI yeah. and that gets signed? Um, the appraisal, the survey, the environmental inspection, all that stuff costs thousands of dollars. And whoever is paying for all of that due diligence work needs to be rewarded for that risk capital because you're not a guarantee you're going to close on this deal. It might be out $40,000. Yeah, we're, we're doing, we're really, you're going to hate this, but I mean, basically to get into one of our deals now, like we're like requiring hard, hard non-refundable money. Because it's like you you get people that'll just drag you along in the process. It's like, all right, well, put up some hard cash, put some skin in the game, and then we'll like we'll pick you to, you know, and that's the terms. And they're getting aggressive. Buyers are literally willing to put down five hundred, six hundred, a million dollars non-refundable if they really want the deal because uh, it's that or they don't get it. So it's you know it, it gives the sellers comfort uh, in in executing a closing. Yeah, fascinating. I appreciate the questions. It was awesome. Miles, you got anything? Yo, yeah, I know. I, I'm, everyone's asking questions that I would like to ask. Um, I'm just curious. 
I feel like there's some things I don't know, so I don't know. I'm just listening right now, to be honest. But all good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no silly question. That's why I was trying to simplify it as we were going. But you can ask. No, yeah. So anything. I'm curious. This is like, a, I guess, a simpler question, but for like a first home buyer, I know you're talking about loans and stuff like like FHA, FHA loans and sellers concessions and stuff. So let's say I go to buy my first loan. I go to get yeah. my first. I go to get my first loan. Right? Is there like a certain um number of uh like like a credit check or something that depends on like if i get a three percent or a five percent how does that work so any fha will be three and a half percent um the first step that you should take is reaching out to a lender i think we have a lender on this call yeah michelle marcos uh chat with her she could help hello you out. yes you're right <laughs> <laughs> yep i got you michelle and then you can get pre-approved and at that point you're, you're good to go they'll say you're good to buy a house up to four hundred fifty thousand dollars you need three and a half percent down, and this is what it's going to cost monthly after that. And then, if the house costs, like, let's say, six hundred thousand dollars and not four fifty, would that percent go up, or the percent would stay the same? But you're probably not going to be able to get a loan on it because okay. the lender has to be willing to work with you on it, and they're they're going to undress you, look at everything that you have, all your financials, and determine where they're comfortable lending to you. Okay, really, thank you. So, Miles, you should probably just, I mean, if you hopped on a call with Michelle, like it doesn't have to be anything, but it could be just a learning experience on it more. Because yeah. I, I find that that first uh, initial check, people are like, oh, I think this is a good deal. I think this is a good deal. But like people don't know what they're able to do with their money. So it, think, it gives yeah, you a good. I don't even know, like there's probably a house <laughs> tomorrow, you know, and I, I don't even know that I can buy it. So exactly um, thinking like, oh, do I have, do I have enough money? Am I going to get approved? You know, a lot of people don't know that. So I've learned a lot on this call about what you can and can't do. So this is really yeah, helpful. definitely. Let's connect. I can help answer some questions. Sure. Great. Awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Zach, you got anything? Hey, uh, no, I think I'm good. You guys are covering a lot of stuff. Um, so I've been doing my best just to take it all in. Uh, definitely, what? honestly, going to look at the recording afterward just to, like, I don't know, comprehend it better. Um, but it was, it was definitely a lot. So I'm, I think I'm just digesting at this point. But I uh, appreciate uh, you setting this up and uh, all, the, uh, all the comments so far have been, been really, really good. Zach, I know you're looking at, you were mentioning how you might be looking at someplace in the, the Hoboken area. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. But do you guys, I, Sal, I saw you nod your head, Steven. Have you guys looked at that area? Is that a low appreciation? Does that appreciate? Does that one make Hoboken, sense? That's probably pretty high appreciation. It's probably pretty competitive because of the uh, proximity to New York. I just stick to places I know. I grew up in connected to New York area and I lived in Tampa for almost six years. So those are the neighborhoods right now. Thoughts on uh, yeah, we're... thoughts on uh co-ops versus condos. If if, I, if there's any knowledge about that, I, I I'm not sure. I stick away from anything that has a uh HOA. Okay. Don't trust HOAs. I think you lose a lot of ownership rights. Um that's one thing I'd say that avoid in my opinion okay cool cool yeah because one place we're looking at is like super nice relatively lesser expensive than the rest but it's like a co-op 
So, I mean, I, I haven't looked at like the co-op, like the actual, you know, contract that they have or what they would have. I just know it's like, they take a lot of rights away, like in terms of just yeah. like being able and to it, like sell, like it's like they got to sell like the price that they want to sell it at. Not at well, like, yeah. like what I see on Zillow or whatever, like that's probably like might have not gone threaded through the board so that I could say I want it, but then like they'll just be like, nah, like we're not going to sell it for that price sort of thing. Yeah. And if you love that place and you want to live there for a long time, it might be good for you. But if you're looking to like live there for a year and move and have it as an investment, I'd stay, stay away. Cause yeah, they totally. might, they may not let you do short term there. They may not let you put the certain kind of flower you want out front. Like they have the control there. Yeah. The bigger thing too is like, yeah, they might not like let you like sublet it out or something like that. Where it's like, yep. all right, we're not making this difficult, but okay. Good to know. Absolutely. The other thing I see is Steven dropped his info in the chat. Um, so if you ever want to give him a ring email, he is there and open. Yeah, if you have any questions, um, always happy to help. Yeah, absolutely. Sal, why don't you hit us with one more and we'll close this thing out? Because I know you said sure. you had a couple. Um, I was going to ask, how do you finance the rehab on a property? And if, like, do you take out a separate loan for something like that? Like, if you buy a place and you have to do work on it, I was just wondering how you would, like, finance the work for it. Because, obviously, it's, you know, it might be more than just a paint job, you know? Yeah, so... That all comes down to the underwriting, understanding what it's going to take going into it. Um, you, you should have a good idea of what you're going to need. So on the 24 unit, I had to roll some of the refinance capital from the eight unit refinance into that in order to pay for that rehab work. And then when you refi the 24, you get you get it back. <laughs> you just you snowball that debt. That's how I did it on the 24. Um, otherwise you raise more capital. I mean, say I need 200 for the 24, I raise 2.44, I'd have to raise 2.6. Mm. So it's going to come from somewhere on a line item. Gotcha. And uh, Yeah, I would just, I mean, this is one quite a great question. One, one question I had was, how do you dictate the percentage to give someone based on the, the loan they give? Like if they give you, I'm gonna try for as little as possible, and they're gonna try for as high as possible. And so it's just a negotiation. Yeah, that's all it is. There's no set numbers. Gotcha. No, the guy that started with the nine percent on that one, I think he started with like thirteen percent. Oh, buddy, buddy, I don't do single digit, and it's like, well, sir, I don't do two double digits, so we'll figure this out, or I'll call someone else. I mean, yeah, we end up working out at nine. Of course, everyone wants to make their money. Um, Steven, uh, any last comments? And we'll close this out. Um, feel free to reach out to me if you have any other questions. I'd say, again, just having that mentality of getting it done is, is what will make it happen. Absolutely. Steven, this has been awesome. I think we've learned a ton about real estate investing, a ton about financial literacy, a ton about how to get these done. There's going to be another call next week and that's going to be with a financial advisor. So that will cover more stocks, bonds, etc. But I hope to see you guys all there. And Steven, I can't thank you enough for hopping on and giving us a little bit of time. And I appreciate everyone else hopping on. This has been phenomenal. And I'll post this recording onto my podcast. It's hashtag clocked in with Jordan Edwards. And you'll find it there. And I also have Steven's podcast that we did 
you know, a little bit more in depth on his story. So thank you. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.